TR and I thoroughly enjoying ourselves. There's not many places where I go that I think inwardly, and I haven't said it, I've thought it, but now I will say it. You know, you're lucky to get to live here. I would, you know, I think it'd be wonderful to get to live here. Hong Kong. I think it's the most exciting city I've ever been in. I thought that 20 years ago, the first time I came. And um, I'm delighted to be here uh, and uh, to meet Sam and Lisa. Let's see, what name shall I give you? <laughs> Thank you for having us. Now, normally when I go someplace that I've never been, I will preach my sermon, Total Forgiveness, which I did a couple hours ago. And normally I would just repeat that because it's a different set of congregation. But for some reason, I thought this time I should preach three different sermons. And there is a trilogy. Uh, there's total forgiveness, totally forgiving ourselves, and that's coming up in, in the next minute or two. And then at the later service, totally forgiving God. Now, I'm uneasy with that title of a book because it could be misunderstood because you could derive from that that God is guilty of something. Not true. He is blameless. He is perfect. But I use the phrase because if you feel that God has let you down by what he allowed by not answering your prayer, what is your attitude going to be toward God? In that sense, you forgive him. That is, you let him off the hook. And that will be uh, later today. Uh, but for now, I want to deal with this question of forgiving ourselves. And I want to read to you from two passages. The first is Philippians chapter 3. And I will just use, uh, quote one verse uh, in it from verse uh, 6, where in verses uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6, Paul is referring to his pedigree, so to speak, his background. But in this, he uses the phrase, persecuting the church. And then a couple of verses down, he says in verse 13, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Now, I will make clear, I hope, in a few minutes, the interesting contradiction, persecuting the church and then forgetting what is behind. The other passage is in Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and I'll start at verse 10, Revelation 12, 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, we have come, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accused, accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place that their perception of what I say will be heard, received, applied as you intend. Cleanse my tongue, that I will be your transparent vehicle to convey everything that needs to be said and nothing that doesn't need to be said. I pray that this will be a life-changing word, that there will be those who hear these words who are set free, never to be the same again. And may this word bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I received an email from a person that I've not met. And uh, I didn't know where he was from. I corresponded with him just a little bit. He's from California. But he wrote to thank me for my book, Total Forgiveness. And then went on to say, but would you please, please, as soon as possible, write a book that will help me to forgive myself. When I got that word, I was rather smitten because I knew that my book, Total Forgiveness, had not touched very deeply at all the issue of forgiving yourself. I think I give it two pages. And I knew that he was right. And I was quite convicted. But immediately I said to myself, how can I write a book on forgiving ourselves when this is what I need to do? And it made me realize that there was a skeleton in my closet. And I was so ashamed. And I, I, I just couldn't write it. And I wrote him and said, well, thank you. I will think about it and pray about it. But God used this man. I've never met him. In much the same way as God used a man by the name of Joseph Tsun to help me see I needed to forgive people who had hurt me and done quite horrible things. Joseph Sohn said to me, R.T., you must totally forgive them. Now here comes a man I've never met, and God has used him almost as much as he used Joseph Sohn, maybe the equivalent, maybe more so. Because whereas I describe total forgiveness as climbing Mount Everest, it's, the, it's a great achievement. Not everybody does this. Totally forgiving ourselves, I would see it as the very peak of Mount Everest. 
But because for me, for me, this was much harder to do than forgiving those who had hurt me. Strange as that may seem, it was much harder for me to have to forgive myself because there was something that I was so ashamed of. And I know when I talk like this, your minds are starting to wonder, ah, oh, wonder what that is. I'll tell you, I will hide nothing. I had this problem, and it had to do with how I have failed as a parent. Some years ago, right toward the end of my 25 years at Westminster Chapel, I was invited by the Billy Graham organization to do a 60-minute video, uh, let them ask questions, and uh, I wasn't the only one. They asked two or three others in London, and uh, they asked questions like, um, how do you prepare your sermons? What is your doctrine of the Holy Spirit? What's it like for an American being a pastor of a church in London? And then they said, well, now that's 59 minutes. We've got one minute left. How shall we use it? Dr. Kendall, tell us about your role as a father. I said, stop, stop, don't film. Because on this, I have been a failure. I've put the church first, thinking I was putting God first. I've put sermon preparation first, thinking I was putting God first. I now believe, had I put my family first, I would have preached just as well. But I can't get those years back. And I feel horrible. The funny thing is, they were filming the whole time. And that's the only part they used. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mind. They said, this will help other pastors. Go for it, I said. You've no idea the sense of guilt. I, I look back on those 25 years when they, I had our son TR, our daughter Melissa, growing up right there. And I look back and I think, it's just a big blur. Where were they? And then before I know it, they've grown up. And I can't get those years back. When we first came to England, and people want to know how could somebody from Kentucky ever make it to Westminster Chapel, <coughs> Kentucky. I hope that doesn't make you feel inferior. <laughs> I come from the bluegrass state. And one of my uh, great friends is Ricky Skaggs. He's on my board. Bluegrass music. Who here? Anybody in Hong Kong who likes bluegrass music? Three. Four. <laughs> well, you're to be forgiven. <laughs> the way it happened is that I went from seminary in Louisville to Oxford. And we thought it would just be three years. Two, I thought it would be two years, and it had to be three. And then my third year uh, at Oxford, while I'm writing up my thesis, I was invited to preach at Westminster Chapel. And uh, they kept me. We stayed 25 years. But when we first came to England, I go in to see my supervisor at Oxford. 
And among many things he said, I'll never forget this. He says, don't forget your children. These years at Oxford will go by quickly. You won't get these years back. Don't forget your children. But I did. We reckoned that the sooner we get my thesis done and go back to America, then I will have time for, for the children. And so those three years at Oxford, I just was like 25 hours a day in the Bodleian Library to get my thesis written. And then I get it done. I'm invited to Westminster Chapel. Before I know it, we've agreed to stay. And TR came to me right after we agreed to stay. Daddy, you promised that we were going back to America. And we're still here. I couldn't look at him in the eye. And then 25 years are over. Children have grown up. You can't imagine how I've felt. And so when this man writes me this letter, email, help me to forgive myself. I had a lot of work to do, but I can tell you now, and I, I, I'm just telling you, I can really tell you, I've done it. I've done it. And it's a great accomplishment. And, and, and I couldn't begin to tell you what it's meant to me. The freedom, the joy, because there was so much guilt. How dare I forgive myself for this? It's as though I needed to beat myself black and blue and, and go through a lot of penance and all this. When I saw how to do it, and I want to talk to you about that today, it meant everything to me. Now, it could be that you have an equivalent problem. Maybe what I've just described, you would say, that's nothing compared to what I've had to do. Because I suppose many people, there's not a psychologist or pastor, counselor, who hasn't had people come into their study and say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And I've had this in the vestry many, many times. And they want me to tell them how to do it. And I've labored to do it and tried. And maybe you've got a problem. And maybe what I've just described is nothing by comparison. For example, could it be that there's someone here, your problem has been letting people down, falling into sexual sin, having an abortion, unfaithfulness in marriage, being sentenced to prison for a crime, abusing your children, lying to your best friend, ruining another person's career. Perhaps you've injured your health through carelessness, wasted years with the wrong company, gave advice that was utterly wrong, have had to live with a strategic choice that was wrong, took the wrong job, 
were abused, but you blame yourself. Did not listen to concerned friends when you were overtaken with a sin and consequently forfeited a ministry. Perhaps you lost money through lack of wisdom. Or perhaps you did not answer the call of God on your life. Or waited too long to get right with God. The list is endless. And I might or might not have touched what may be your problem. But I want today to do what I can to help anybody that's got this problem. And if the Holy Spirit will help me, and I really do mean that, to get this over, I don't have the ability in myself to do it. This is where I need unusual anointing for all three of these messages for that matter. But in this case, so that I can help you to see what uh, I was enabled to see. And if I can get this over, you will never be the same. I remember preaching this in South Africa. And a lady came up to me after the service and held my hand. I would say a lady in her 50s. And she wouldn't let go. She just looked at me and said, You've no idea what you've done for me tonight. Thank you. But that's what the Lord does. And so if you're here and you can't forgive yourself for whatever it is, this could be a major turning point in your life. Now, here's what I define as forgiving yourself totally. It is letting myself off the hook, unworthy though I am, even as I let others off the hook when I totally forgive them, unworthy though they be, I forgive them. Now I have to do it for myself. And so, as I said, I find forgiving myself harder than forgiving others, but I've done it. And I'm all the better for it. All right, the first question then, why do it? Why forgive ourselves? First, it is precisely what God wants you to do. In my case, when I saw that, it was over. I, for some reason, hadn't quite seen that, hadn't twigged, strange as it may seem. Here I am, I'm known to be as a, a theologian. <laughs> that's, that's me. That's what I did my doctorate in, in Oxford. So I, I, I should know better. And here I was preaching all these years, and I think, as I look back, I was uh, around 68, 69, 70 years old uh, when I got that email. It's kind of embarrassing that it, having been a theologian and preached all those years, and now I'm cornered with the fact that I myself needed this. But all I can tell you is, when I began to see it and the breakthrough came, this is what God wants me to do. It was so wonderful. And I knew by doing it, I was pleasing him. You see, here's the reason he, he, he wants you to do it. And it's so simple. 
And I blush to admit that I seem to go right past it. It's because Jesus died for us on the cross. That's why God sent his son into the world. And once I began to realize that the blood of Jesus shed on the cross totally satisfied his justice. It's done. It's done. And that's why he sent his son into the world. I've preached this, but didn't apply it to myself. I applied it to the lost. But now I could see this is for me. And it was the most wonderful turnaround. I was named after my father's favorite preacher, Dr. R.T. Williams. That's why I go by R.T. It's all I've known all my life. And he would ordain people to the ministry. And he would give this advice. Two things. Honor the blood and honor the Holy Ghost. It's, it's, it's almost like word and spirit. The blood of Jesus. This is why I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. I've sought to honor the blood and honor the Holy Spirit. And I've grown up with this. And here's the thing. Once you see what the blood of Jesus did for God. You know, here's one of the problems, Sam, David, whatever your name is. People today only want to know what's in it for me. The kind of books that will sell, what's in it for me? In fact, it's, <laughs> this is not a big thing, but the English title of my book is Totally Forgiving Ourselves. But in America, the, English, the American edition, they had to put it, How to Forgive Ourselves, Totally to appeal to a certain kind of honor. I was very upset they had to put it that way. That's <laughs> Americans, you know, they're not into understatement. And um, <laughs> it's so funny. And many people today only want to know what's in it for me. A friend of mine who's one of the um, charismatic leaders of Scotland told me, he says, I often watch American Christian TV through the eyes of a non-Christian. And I listen through the eyes and through the ears of a non-Christian. And he said, I turned to my wife one day as we were watching and said, you know, if I didn't know better, I would think Christianity is all about money. Because in nearly every program comes right down to this. And God wants to improve your finances and all this. I hope you never get into that. <laughs> I'm not going to get into it. I'm just tempted to. <laughs> to warn you. Don't go there. People don't ask what's in it for God. They ask what's in it for us. And the heart of the atonement and the heart of Christian theology is what's in it for God. My theology is God-centered. Once I saw this in my old age, I never looked back. And I hope that you will never forget this. Reason number two, you should forgive yourself. It is precisely what Satan does not want you to do. 
Do you know one of the best ways to know the will of God is to figure out what do you think the devil would want you to do and do the opposite and you'll get it right. And so when it comes to this, if you knew and you're having a problem forgiving yourself, the devil loves it. He loves it. Because he, he doesn't have to do any work with you. He's already won. You're beating yourself black and blue. Oh, I know I'm forgiven, but I can't forgive myself. The devil loves that. Don't give him that pleasure. And forgiving yourself is obedience to God who sent his son to die. The devil loves it when you're in bondage. The devil loves it when you're feeling guilty. Don't give him that pleasure. Reason number three, which is much the same, but I'll say it like this. You will have inner peace and freedom from the bondage of guilt. You know, I so wish that this very teaching I could have done 25, 30 years ago. Because in my old age, as I now travel the world, people that heard me during the 25 years in London, they hear me now, they say, you've changed. You're a different person from when we knew you. And they say, what is it? I'm telling you, this is it. Having forgiven myself, it just gave me a new freedom. And it's wonderful. I just wish I could have done it sooner. And if it should happen to you, if there's anybody here that you're like I was, you will also say, I wish I hadn't waited so long. But better late than never. And you can start from today and be able to say with Paul, forgetting what is behind. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul put in his pedigree persecuting the church. Do you realize what is in that phrase? Persecuting the church? Do you know how many, well, we won't know till we get to heaven, died because of Saul of Tarsus? He engineered the martyrdom of Stephen when it says that Saul were, was holding uh, their coats. It's a Hebraic expression. He was engineering the whole thing that led to, to Stephen's death. And he was on his road to Damascus when he's going to kill more or have them killed. He thought he was doing God's service. And so he could just say in one phrase, persecuting the church. And then about three sentences later, it says, forgetting what is behind. I want to think, wait, 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 hold it. Hold it. How can you so easily say persecuting the church and now say forgetting what is behind? How can you get from there so fast? But Paul would answer, it's true. It's true because this is the gospel. God forgives. He's not proud of persecuting the church. He's stating it's a fact. In doing so, he must have felt horrible. But something's happened to him. He believes what he preaches. And he could say, just don't look back. Forgetting what is behind. That's what you need to do. You admit what you did. It wasn't good. Don't justify it. Admit it. Confess it. And don't look back. The devil would want you to look back. Reason number four. The degree to which you forgive yourself relates to your own usefulness. 
It's so important that a person has assurance of their salvation. Do you know what I mean by that? When I first went to Westminster Chapel, there were people who struggled with whether they're saved. Really. We had this one man who would come in to me and said, uh, I'm not sure I'm saved. And I would go through the gospel. Yes, I believe that. Good. And he was hung up on another little point. It's not a small point, actually. Uh, he believed in limited atonement, that Christ died only for the elect. He didn't die for everybody, only the elect. It's one of the points of Calvinism. I, I'm a Calvinist, but I don't believe that one. John Calvin himself didn't believe that. Calvin believed Jesus died for everybody. That surprises a lot of people, but it's true. This is what my Oxford thesis is about, largely. And so this man who believed in limited atonement, how can I see that, that I'm really saved? And, and, and I would go through the gospel, and he'd leave feeling so good, and then he'd come back six weeks later and say, well, you know, I've thought of one other thing. Can you help me with this? And I'd go through it. I'd help him. He'd leave feeling much better. Six months later, here he was again. Would you believe that the last year I was at Westminster Chapel, 25 years later, same man comes into the vestry, same problem. I said, by the way, where are you a church member? Oh, I don't go to church. Or at least I'm not a member. You're not a member. No, when I get this problem solved, then I'll become a member and be useful. And I said, do you realize all these years, he's not, even, he's not involved in anything, still laboring over, am I saved? It's a, it's a terrible bondage. And you see, people that don't get involved in the church, oftentimes it can be traced to not forgiving themselves. But when you forgive yourself, it'll do something for you. You will come to your pastor and say, what can I do? Because I don't know what it's like here, Solomon's porch, I have no idea. But if it's typical, then 25% uh, of the membership do 75% of the work. I don't know if that's the case here or not. But why is it that the 75% don't get involved? Often, not always, but often it's traced to the fact you've got a sense of guilt and you're not free. Reason number five, it will help you love people more. The reason you don't love people, you're preoccupied with yourself. You see, uh, there are those who are always on the receiving end. There are two kinds of people that come to the pastor. There are the energizers, and there are the drainers. I know what it is to have a person come to me, and I'm just so glad he came. And I know what it is for come, someone to come in to see me, and and they drain you. And after 20 minutes, you think, whew, I'm glad they're gone. People like that, they don't love people. They, they, they've still got their own problem. And years later, still with it. And I'm, I'm helping you, I hope, to see that the devil paralyzes you in this way. Reason number six, it will cause people to like you more. You say, I don't care whether people like me. You lie. You do care. Do you want to be the kind of person when you walk in the room, the lights go out. You walk in the room, everybody says, oh dear, look who's here. Do you want to be that kind of person? 
Or do you want to be the energizer? And they say, oh, look, great to see you. They'll like you more. It'll do something for you. Reason number seven, you'll be better able to fulfill what God has in mind for you. I'm using a lot of time in the introduction. We've not even got into it much, but uh, let me go to number eight. Your own physical health is at stake. I've had two people that I know of to say to me that through my preaching the sermon, total forgiveness, the one I preached two hours ago, were healed. A lady in South Africa told me two years later, when you preached total forgiveness, I was healed. And I talked to a person last week, said, I was healed when you preached that total forgiveness physically. Well, when you don't forgive yourself, your hostility is inward and it affects your physical health. One of the great reasons for total forgiveness is what it does for you physically. Many doctors will tell you that holding a grudge is injurious to your health. Unforgiveness will lead, in many cases, to arthritis, kidney disease, high blood pressure, heart disease. So also, when you can't forgive yourself, it affects you. Next, your mental and emotional health could be at stake. In the same way, one psychopathologist said, I could cure any guilt problem in 30 minutes, or any psychopathology in 30 minutes, if I could get the person not to feel guilty. Well, how much more should we, when we know that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all our sins. There's no basis for guilt if you point the devil to the cross. And finally, your spiritual state is at stake. What I had to say last night about grieving the Spirit and not grieving the Spirit is all tied to this. Now, before I go any further, I want to make an important clarification between true guilt and false guilt. There's a difference. True guilt and false guilt. When I first wrote this book, I sent the manuscript to two or three friends. And they came back and said, that section on false guilt meant more to me than anything in the book. Now, I don't know that it will to you. It, it was that way with these people. But there are a lot of people that are crippled not from true guilt, but from false guilt. Uh, now, First of all, what is true guilt? True guilt is when you are culpable toward God. It is called sin. And when you have sinned before God, that's true guilt. Now, the irony is that true guilt is the hardest to see. And that's because Satan does not want you to see that you have sinned. And Satan is a liar. He's the father of liars. And he will cause you to gloss over your sin and you don't feel anything for what you did. That's the devil. And he's the accuser of all of God's people. 
And you see, also because we're basically self-righteous, we gloss over our sin, and that we don't realize that self-righteousness is competing with the atonement. Now, King David, man after God's own heart, had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then covered up his sin by having her husband killed. And you know what? Apparently, David did not feel a thing. The reason he didn't feel anything, he, he was a king, and everything was going well for him. He was on the height of his power and glory and success. And he probably justified himself by saying, well, I've just got a strong ego, and I've got a strong libido, and God understands in my case. And so he commits adultery with Bathsheba, uh, and then she gets pregnant, and he's got to cover it up by trying to get Uriah, the Hittite, her husband, who was in battle, to come home and sleep with his wife so they wouldn't know who the baby was, uh, who was the father of the baby, because Bathsheba would never tell. The trouble is, Uriah the Hittite wouldn't sleep with her. Some would say it's because he had an overly scrupulous conscience. He couldn't bring himself to enjoy a weekend with his wife when his fellow soldiers were in the battle. He just couldn't do it. In any case, he wouldn't sleep with her, so David had him killed by putting him in the front of the battle and told Joab, keep him in the front until he's killed. The scholars tell us that it was about two years lapsed. One of the thing, things I want to discover when I get to heaven how did David spend those two years? Is it possible that he wrote a psalm during that time? I don't know. But you see, he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. So Nathan the prophet comes to him and, and, and says, I want to tell you this story. He's saying it as though it were real. He says to the king, there were two men in a certain town, one reach. By the way, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 2 says, uh, uh, in verse 1, there were two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, grew it up with him and his children, shared its food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. However, a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger. How dare anybody do like that? As surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. You see, he thought it was somebody else's sin. We can always see the other person's sin. And then Nathan said, you're the man. You're the man. God says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the land of Saul, from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. 
I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you whatever you wanted. Why did you despise the word of the Lord and do what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your heart, leave your uh, house, because you despised me and took Bathsheba to be your own. And he goes on to say, things will never be the same again. It took that to make David see that he had sinned. Isn't it amazing? Adultery, murder, feeling nothing. Is it possible? Someone here? You're involved in something that's wrong. You know it's wrong, but you, 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 you just gloss over it. It doesn't bother you. My point is, true guilt is so hard to see. Now here's the irony. False guilt is so easy to see and so easy to feel. False guilt is perhaps not meeting the expectation of others, imagined or real. Here's the thing. False guilt, or we sometimes refer to pseudo-guilt, is not sin. But it becomes a sin if we persist knowingly in false guilt. After all, if you confess it to God but continue to blame yourself, you have sinned. The point is, to have pseudo-guilt is not a sin. Therefore, when we feel we let others down, and then we feel we let ourselves down, uh, we feel horrible about it, but it's not a sin. But it becomes a sin if we keep letting others down. So we call it false or pseudo-guilt. But the irony is, false guilt is very, very real. In fact, the further irony is, it's the hardest to deal with. Pseudo-guilt is the hardest to deal with. In my book, Totally Forgiving Ourselves, I have a whole chapter on examples of false guilt. Uh, for example, not answering letters that we think we need to reply to. Uh, not getting work done that we feel driven to do. Uh, hurting a person's feelings that we didn't even see them. And they say, you went right by me and didn't speak to me. And Oh dear, I, I didn't see you. And then you feel guilty that you didn't see them. Uh, we go on. Uh, having unrealistic ambition can lead to pseudo-guilt. And a most recent example was just two days ago. Sam, isn't it? Sam and Lisa took uh, T.R. and me to a lovely restaurant. And I assumed we'd be finished around 8 o'clock. And I had made arrangements for two friends of mine uh, who are here in this service to come and get us at 8 o'clock and go to Kowloon because I wanted T.R. to see Nathan Road at night. And so I said, I'll be ready at 8 o'clock. We're eating, enjoying the meal, and I look at my watch, and it's, oh dear, it's 20 past 8, and we haven't even finished. The conversation went so well, and we just enjoyed each other. And then we had to find them, and uh, the, the lady, Joyce, uh, 
Joyce is here. By the way, she translates my books into Chinese. Uh, and, uh, and, and her friend, uh, Aubrey, who was going to be in Nathan Road waiting for us. And, and I began to look at my watch and I thought, I can't tell Sam. <laughs> I'm having the hardest trouble remembering your name. <laughs> I can't tell Sam, look, we got to go because, you know, the meal wasn't cheap. And, it were, we, and, and then I thought, finally, do you know, about 10 to 9 and we're supposed to be there at 8. We get going and I'm feeling horrible all evening. Kept Aubrey waiting, kept Joyce waiting, and Joyce said, RT, your problem is false guilt. Because <laughs> she had translated this book into Chinese. I said, you're right. But here's the point. True guilt is the hardest to see. False guilt is the easiest to see. You can get over true guilt just like that. To get over false guilt, it takes time. And the devil will use that. So, it's easier to deal with true guilt. And do you know why? That's because God doesn't hold grudges. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can deal with true guilt just like that. Because God is not up there saying, well, I don't know whether you're sorry enough. Uh, I'm not sure I can forgive you. Come back in a month. No! The moment you see it, you confess it, it's done! That's what happened to me. And so if you're dealing with true guilt, thank God you can confess it and it be done with. False guilt, you're just worrying about what people think. Not a sin unless eventually it overtakes you and it becomes a sin then. Well, why is it so hard to forgive ourselves? Well, it's our sinful nature. Two things we battle with. And I haven't been around your pastor enough to know all the theology that is taught here. But I happen to hold that the heart is deceitful. Above all things, desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. And you know what? That's true with the most mature Christian. We're all basically self-righteous. And we're all basically full of self-pity. And these twin sins, self-righteousness and self-pity, are those that we have to battle, battle with. Now, you may be asking, I wonder what R.T. thinks about his role as a father. And the guilt I felt over the years, is it true guilt or is it false guilt? The answer, true guilt. I let my family down. I sinned against God. I've confessed it. I've confessed it to them. But when it's true guilt, you can deal with it. And I did. But then... You've got not only your own self-righteousness that you battle against, and self-pity, but the devil. You see, the devil doesn't want you to forgive yourself, and he is called, and I just read it a few moments ago, 
the accuser of the brothers. That's the devil's job description. He's the accuser. Accuser. He's got a computer printout on your personality and everything you've done up to the last five seconds. And he will call to your attention everything you've done and just bring you right down. Remember the three R's of spiritual warfare. Recognize, refuse, resist. So how to distinguish the difference between true guilt and false guilt? False guilt, refuse to believe Satan's lie. Recognize, this is the devil. Don't give him any dignity by dwelling on it. That's what he wants you to do. Recognize, refuse, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When he brings up your past, by the way, the next time the devil brings up your past... Remind him of his future. <laughs> he knows he has but a short time. Don't let him bring you down. And then, one more thing as I bring this message, trying to wind it down. The family secret. Do you know what the family secret is? That's my phrase. For Romans 8.28, when I am asked to sign a book, I usually sign Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Why? Did God give us Romans 8.28? Because he doesn't want you to feel guilty. You see, Romans 8.28 refers not to the future. It is not a priori, looking ahead. It refers to the past, a posteriori. Don't use Romans 8.28 to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do, it'll work together for good. If you want to be a fool... You take that attitude. But to those who now, it's done, it's past, and you're sorry. You know what God says? Leave it with me. Watch what I do. All things work together for good to them that love God. And here's the amazing thing about that verse. God will make it work together so good that you're tempted to say, well, that was the way it was supposed to be. Wrong. In other words, the fact that it works together for good doesn't mean it was right what you did. What David did, sinning with Bathsheba and covering it up, was wrong. It was horrible. Arguably the worst sin of anybody in the Old Testament, in a sense. Horrible sin. You say, did it work together for good? Well, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you read the first chapter of Matthew? You realize we don't give Matthew to a new Christian. We give him Mark, John, 
Luke, but not Matthew, because it didn't start out very thrilling. Uh, imagine, here's a new Christian. Well, I guess I better start reading the Bible. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. And he says, what have I got myself into? This is the most boring book I've ever read. But keep reading. You come down to verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Would you believe that Bathsheba's baby is part of the Messianic line? David had other wives. Why would God have let it be through Bathsheba? And so when you read the account of the genealogy of Jesus and you read about this, you think, well, that's the way it was supposed to be. No, that's not the way it was supposed to be. But now that it has happened, God says, watch what I do. And it makes it look good. That's how gracious our God is. And whatever your failure, Jesus says, leave it with me. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You'll find rest to your souls. And then there's that verse in Joel. God says, I will restore the years which the locusts have eaten. And I think of my failure as a dad. Who do you suppose sitting on the front row? Here in Hong Kong, we get to travel the world together. I don't deserve this. I'm always just going up to him. I think I drive him nuts. I say, TR, I love you. I'm so glad you're with me. And our daughter, Melissa, we're closer than ever. They both live just 45 minutes from us in Nashville. How to forgive yourself totally. I've given you all the reasons. Last but not least, the family secret. God says, just wait and see. Everything in your past will work together for good. It may not happen day after tomorrow, but give him time. That's the God of the Bible. I think I'm finished. <laughs>